0: First 1 John chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we're continuing through John's first letter. And as I said last week, I'll repeat it again. John's first letter is unlike the other two letters. There's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Third John was written specifically to a specific person. Second John was written to a specific fellowship like ours, a congregation, a local church. But 1 John, we believe, based on the way it's written and what scores of theologians and archaeologists and historians see, this was written to be circulated among the early church. There are two reasons that John wrote this letter. Number one, to confirm the believer's confidence in Jesus. Their confidence is being shaken. This is why he's part of why he's... Writing this. He wants, but my wife and my kids see me day in and day out. So what I say is true, but is it true for me? Am I actually owning this? Do I believe in this? Or am I just giving mental assent? He wants them to know this and believe this. And the funny thing is, John doesn't spend time trying to convince them with intellectual arguments. Paul says that. I didn't come to you in lofty speech, I came to you. The, I came to you in the demonstration, in the power of God, in the demonstration of his Holy Spirit. That way we don't get to take credit for it. So when God does something, it is clear to everybody and he gets the glory and that's why we exist. He doesn't come to convince them with intellectual arguments. He comes rather to reassure them with the true power of God's love. Not as the world defines love, but as Jesus defines love. And brush my teeth. She doesn't love my breath. I'm thankful she still loves me despite all my warts. Because love goes deeper than how we feel. Love goes deeper than what we know. Love is a person, 1 John 4.8. Second reason John writes this is to confront the lies and demonic deceptions. Now, my personality, I tend to want to highlight this and gravitate more towards this. I've been, ever since birth, a negative Nancy, a Debbie Downer. I'm pessimist. But that is all the more reason why I need this letter. There were folks who used to be part of their fellowship who lied about Jesus. That is the second reason. he will see. He doesn't spend exorbitant amounts of time highlighting by name who these people are. He doesn't dwell on the devil. He lives in love. And love covers a multitude of sins. Love gives us hope. Knowledge puffs blowing myself up. One little needle, pop, deflated. But God's love literally edifies. That word means build up. He wants to build us up. And as he builds us up, he will flood our hearts with his love. Our confidence in God's love gives us the power to walk confidently in truth. To shine the light of his life And expose, while we do that, the deceptions and the lies that confuse so many today. There's there's so much confusion, right? People are torn up, confused. Anxiety is through the roof. Well, if you here this morning, and those of you online, have a relationship with Jesus, you have the power of the Almighty God in his son Jesus, who poured out his love. He demonstrated his love. And He sealed us with his spirit. And we don't, we're not the answer, so we don't have to worry about having the right answer for people we talk about, talk with. We just have to know the answer. And the more we know him, the more we have to share with others. And that is what people need. They need Jesus, his love, his truth, will unveil the darkness, expose it, cut it out like a cancer, and he'll build other people up. As we saw last week, his joy will be made full in us, and as he makes his joy full in us, he's going to cram our nets with joy so big that we won't have enough to contain. And that's the way it's designed. That his joy would spill out of us and be so abundant that it would not only fill up the people next to us, it'd spill out of them. That's how much joy Jesus wants to fill us with. So, I keep mentioning truth. Give me a second. We don't want to repeat the same mistakes I made last week, right? You remember that? I was hacking along. The world we live in now, more they believe that truth is not absolute. And furthermore, that those who say that truth is absolute are closed-minded and hateful. You're not open-minded. You're not progressive. That's obsolete. Those are the old ways. But John's letter is loaded with absolute truth claims. For example, God is light, 1 John 1.5. God is love, 1 John 4.8. Again, love is not what we think. Love is who he is. Light is not how we observe it in the scientific community. It's who he is. You cannot practice sin and live in truth, 1 John 1.8. Now, let me qualify this because this hung me up as a younger kid. It says here, My little children, I'm writing these things to you, chapter two, verse one, so that you may not sin. Ugh, I can't sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He also, you ought to look at Barna's studies as of, I think, 2018. Scores of people still, well, the issue really is not whether or not Jesus is historical. The vast majority believe that Jesus historically was a real person but it starts to quickly deteriorate after that. Less than half of those folks believe that he actually died on the cross for our sins, as I shared last week. And even far less, especially my generation, and I'm like the, on the older end of it. I'm born in 85. You're like, are hey, you youngster? Yes, I am, but not with my youth. But I'm on the old end of that. And most of people my generation... 85 to 2000, they don't believe that we're sinful. We're naturally good. We've been hearing that. I grew up seeing Disney movies. Believe in your heart. You're a good person. That is not what God's word says. Going on here, because I don't have a lot of time to waste here. In 1 John 2, 15, he says, we cannot love what this world loves and still love the Father. You can't be in love with the things of the world and still love the Father. Because the Father is not of this world. And the things he loves, this world system does not love. The values are diametrically opposed. And here's another bold claim John makes. Whoever denies Jesus is the Christ has the spirit of the Antichrist. 1 John 2.22. That's really bold. Well, wait a minute, Jake. I have a friend who, look, don't shoot the mess. Christ does not love God. 1 John 4.20. This starts to get more and more personal for us. It is really easy for me to say I love God. But is that manifested in the way I treat all of you? Do I have hatred in my heart? Look, the list goes on, but the point is this. If we don't believe in Jesus is absolute truth, and he taught many things that were absolutes. For example, Jesus said, and I said this last week, he said that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. He goes on and says, there is no other way through the Father except through him. John 14, 6. Do we believe that? Now, picking up here in verse 5, let's read this one more time. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. couple things to pull away from this verse and by the way i've got four points but the first two points are your typical points the last two are less points they're more questions and the last one is a doozy for this guy so i'll let you know when they come up this is not the first point but these are two things that stood out to me from verse five. First, like i said already don't shoot the messenger this is not john's message john didn't make this message up He's not the message. He is simply repeating what Jesus said in John 8:12. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, especially to all the younger folks, from me on down, we're not supposed to follow our hearts. We're supposed to follow him. If we follow him, we don't walk in darkness. If we're following him and something else, we're not following him. It's him or something else. It's not God plus. It's not God and. We don't get to redefine who God is. We're made in his image, not the other way around. So why is John repeating Jesus' message? This might sound like an obvious question. Why is John repeating Jesus' message? Now we might automatically go, well, because it's true. In 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. This is why we teach the word in our youth ministry. And their teachings don't go a whole lot shorter than yours, by the way. (laughs) Right, Maddie? (laughs) Faith in Jesus comes by listening to his word. Not by motivational speeches, but his word. Let me ask all of us, what or who are we listening to? A lot of folks are soaked up in news. Well, I don't listen to Fox News. Guys, I don't really watch the TV anymore for news, but there's a lot of news sources that I'm subscribed to, and I've had to really take stock and go, how much of this is fruitful? There's a lot of folks stirred up in fear because they're not listening to Jesus. They're listening to the voices of the world, and so that's not a surprise. We're going to get on the rap, hip-hop, and whatever else, and you listen to explicit music. What's concerning is more and more young people go, yeah, Jesus knows my heart. He'd understand. That's the problem. We expect him to align with us. He's called us to align with him. Why are more people within the church okay living in sin? I think one big reason is because we're drifting away from knowing his heart because we're not living by his word. We have religious rites. We grow up in church traditions. But that is not the same thing as abiding in his word. Paul wrote that we speak what we believe. What comes out of our mouth. Let me back up. Paul writes, I I believe, therefore I speak. 2 Corinthians 4.13. Jesus said in Matthew 12.34 that our mouths reveal our hearts. It's easy again for me to come up here and speak from God's word, teach from God's word with all of you. What kind of things come out of my mouth when I'm talking to my wife, or when my kids are doing something and I'm already irritated, and then boom, I blurt out in frustration. What does that say about what, where Jesus, or what does that say about where my heart is abiding? My dad said this: you can get to know a lot about someone, not in the good times, but in the hard, and we all know this. When you put someone under the pressure and the heat, it's the things that come out in those situations that really reveal where their heart's at. It's easy for me to come up and teach. Going back to why John is repeating Jesus' message. Well, in Acts 4.18 through 21, we see Peter and John could not shut up about what they'd seen and heard. In Acts 4.18, when the Sanhedrin summoned them They commanded them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. We need to remember, and now Peter and John are standing before these men. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. They were speaking from what they believed. What was in their heart was coming out of their mouth. John's writing this because it's true, and it's true for him. This letter from John is the message of Christ written on John's heart, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 through 3. And what again is John's message? Look at verse 5 again. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. What was the first thing God created after the heavens and the earth light genesis 1:3 then god said let there be light and there was light he spoke it here it is spoken what did he do words and light came which is why we need to abide in his he makes clarity out of out of our confusion and fog god spoke light god speaks light into existence because And this is why, because God is light. And so light comes from God. John writes like this a lot. If this, then this. If this, then this. And this. So if what I'm saying is kind of like, well, that sounds obvious. To quote my dad, if it's so obvious, Jake, how come you're not doing it? Light is a person. It's not a substance or a thing that we observe through science. Daniel 2, verse 22, Daniel said, it is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what light dwells with him. I mean, how profound do you have to get? So I want to just encourage you, if you feel like you're walking in darkness right now, for one reason or another, things are confusing, convoluted, foggy, chaotic, Spend time with him. Yeah, but I have these things to do. You know, we can go through the Gospels and see all these things that had to be done. And Jesus, interestingly enough, stepped away to go spend time with the Father and pray. Jesus did things contrary to human logic. Well, this has to get done. Does it? If I'm already messed up and I'm continuing to do things because they have to get done, I'm probably going to mess those things up. So why don't I pull back? Dial down and spend time with him. In for his image. We know that, Bible students, Genesis 1, And since God is light and they're children of God, we can conclude they were children of light. This, this is, again, profound. They were children of light under his light and they were unaware of their nakedness. The light went out and they saw their nakedness. How do you see in the dark? But the issue isn't, oh, they can actually see in the dark. There are people today who will tell you, and we, honestly, it goes back to the beginning of humanity, and this is a deception of the devil. If you want to understand what's going on in there, you've got you to be in it a little bit. you got to revel in it. you got to experience it. Why, how how come they were able to see their nakedness in the darkness? It wasn't that they saw their nakedness. It's because they could no longer see who they were in God's eyes. They were uncovered. They left his light. Their light went out. There's no confidence anymore. That's why we see in Genesis 3, they shrunk away, they hid in the bushes. Why? To cover themselves. How did they sin? They didn't live by the light of his word. God said, all this is yours. Just don't do this one thing. And why did he put that there? Because love requires a choice. He loved us enough to give us a choice. That's incredible to me. He set himself up for heartbreak. We moan and bemoan of his word. And so when we don't live in his word, by his word, we live uncovered. His light covers us, and when we leave that light, we fall into shame and guilt. That's your first point. His light covers us with confidence. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I can say for myself, and I know I speak for a number of folks here, you've had that awkward dream where he wants to cover us with his light, he wants to clothe us with his light and cover us with his confidence. This is what's written about the bride of Christ. At this point though, they're the wife. Revelation 19.8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And isn't this a ploy of the enemy? They think that it's freeing to walk in darkness when the opposite couldn't be more true. It's so interesting, underst- taking time and reading things and hearing things over time. The Hebraic worldview, at least according to scriptures, Jesus' day, you, things that were precious, things that were attractive, things that were worthwhile, valuable, you covered them. What do we do with what is precious and worthwhile? We expose it. We flaunt it. That's not the way God's word instructs us to live our lives, though. Look at verse this last week. I want to repeat it. When you see the word fellowship, think family. We hear fellowship and it's kind of an abstract idea for most of us, if not all of us. But family, we all get that. Some of us better than others. But we all have some understanding, some concept, some personal experiential knowledge of what it means to be part of a family. And what does that mean? Families share things in common. Remember, this letter was written in the Koinos Greek, which is the street Greek, the common Greek. Why? So that all and any and everyone could know God's heart from his own mouth, who he is and what he calls us to be, what he invites us to be a part of. This was written in a common Greek so that God could make himself common to all of us, that we could share with him. Families share possessions. Everything I have is Cam's, and everything Cam has is hers. We share together. (laughs) I had to. I know, you're all like, come on, Jake. It was an obvious joke. That's not the truth, though. She has shared herself with me in every way, shape, and form. That's why, again, going back to last week, why marriage is such a beautiful thing and why we need to cover our marriages in the light of his word to protect the sanctity of marriage because it reveals the heart of God to the world we live in. And we get to partake in something special. That's just a shadow of something we get to look forward to. So if you're here, but fellowship is family. We share things in common. We share values in common. We share identity, which is why again, we take communion together on a regular basis because this identifies not just who Jacob Barksdale is. Some people go, oh, I miss the van. (laughs) I don't. I don't miss the van at all. You know why? Because this guy was driving the bridge van. So when he's coming down, what is it, R Avenue? Speed limit's 35 and he's pushing 45, guess what? Mm Mm-hmm. I get pulled over in the Bridge Christian Fellowship van. It's a billboard on wheels, and it was the most humiliating thing, and I get pulled over. And of course, everybody, when lights light up and someone gets pulled over, everyone's like, ooh. (laughs) Some people have been burned by the church, like, "Mm mm-hmm, you get him, officer. It was so embarrassing, so shameful. Not just because I'm getting pulled over, no one likes that, but I'm driving the church van, everyone's like, oh, people of the Bridge Christian Fellowship are lawbreakers because of this guy we share identity with each other. What I do, what I say doesn't just affect me. We don't live in a vacuum. Everything about me affects you and vice versa. We share fellowship. But as John writes, we can't be from God and not share in his identity and values. To say we have fellowship with God is to share in his identity and therefore his values. As I said earlier, please accept it. I'm about to say something that is touchy and more and more touchy. I watched part of a documentary this last week made by someone who identifies as, quote, queer Christian. That's like saying you're soaking dry. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. It doesn't add up. In Matthew 19.4, for all the arguments within the church about gender and sexuality and all of that, no, they're not. One and the same because that's the way he made them. That's the way he addresses them. A lot of people like, I love Jesus. Genesis, that's a fable made by obsolete, backwards-minded people. Well, if that's the case, then that's who Jesus is because he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's it. Marriage between a man and a woman. That's it. There are no equivocations. This is just one obvious thing. We could go through a whole list of things that many of us in the church say we agree with that defy his doctrine. Why do so many say they believe in Jesus and yet do things that defy and contradict who Jesus is and what he teaches? Why is it becoming okay? To where the point is, we're at a point now where many churches and yet do things that defy who Jesus is and what he teaches. And this is why Jesus said in John three nineteen, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world And men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Okay, they're evil, so dark, Jesus is good, therefore light. Okay, I get that. But he goes on and says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, here's the kicker, for fear his deeds will be exposed. Those of us who've been walking with Jesus sometimes get perplexed. If Jesus is the greatest thing since sliced bread, greater than that, he is the bread, then why can't so many of our friends and family see that? He's here to forgive them. That's why. For fear their deeds will be exposed. We look at God's light like exposure. When we think of exposure, what words come to mind? Humiliation, shame, guilt, The world says judgment. What we really mean is condemnation. And so people have a distorted view of the heart of God because they don't understand what the light of God, who the light of God is, and how his light affects us. We're going to come back to that in a little bit here. Here's your second point, though. As we look at fellowship, fellowship is family, picking up at verse seven. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see this back and forth here, at least verses five through 10. Here's the truth, here's the lie. Here's the light, here's the dark. Here's the love, here's the hate. And he's contrasting them so that we can start to clearly discern the difference between the two. Because sometimes it's hard for us to discern What is true and not true? All you have to do, again, is look at the news. Who is Zelensky? Man, for every human being on the face of this planet, there's a different opinion about this Ukrainian president. What's the truth? What's really going on? Fellowship is family, though. It says in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Do you guys remember Rick's teaching not long ago, before they went to Israel, when he talked about the menorahs, the giant menorahs? No? Anyone? Raise your hand. Do you remember the giant menorahs? Okay. All right, it was like, it wasn't a light bulb that went on for me. It was like, blinded by the light. When I heard that during this festival talked about, alluded to in John chapter 8, they had four giant menorahs, 75 feet tall. That's almost as tall as this is right here. And there's not one of them, there's four of them. And each of them, each wick was fueled by 60 gallons of oil. This, I'm like, did you know that when the temple stood, it was considered the eighth wonder? It was one of the wonders of the world, right there in itty-bitty Jerusalem. Out of everything in the Roman Empire, these This small nation called Israel had something that made the world marvel. And the more you get to understand just how magnificent the structures were, you start to marvel just imagining it. Seventy-five-foot golden menorahs stationed at the four corners of the temple court, each wick fueled by a 60-gallon basin of oil, People of the day, as Rick said, and he pulled this from contemporary historians of the day, you could see Jerusalem a hundred miles away. A hundred miles away. Think about that. Question Where does Jerusalem sit? Where did the temple sit? It sat on Mount Moriah on a mountain. Jesus said in Matthew five fourteen, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. There's a distinction there. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Imagine this with the menorahs, people seeing it from afar off. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It gives light to all see and come to God's tabernacle. And as we Bible students know, believers in Jesus, the tabernacle is not a building made with human hands. Revelation 21, three, I heard a loud voice from the throne Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they will be his people and God himself will be among them. Jesus is the tabernacle and the light that he has put in each of us who have given our lives to him, that light shines. It's designed to shine in such a way that it would glorify our father. If he is light, he's pleased to see light. But also for those who are far off, who are in darkness, are drawn to the light. And when we're with Jesus, I'll get ahead of myself here. In verse 6, if we abide in Jesus, his light illuminates us from the inside out. Revelation 22:5, there will no longer be night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And in Daniel chapter 12, he speaks about his people, Israel, being raised up from the dust and they will shine like the stars in the heavens. The difference is, we're stars. You can see them in the night sky, they're beautiful, but I can't see a a single star right now. We're stars, he's the sun. It's looked like in Jesus's day, The lamp gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus didn't come to leave us as orphans, but to adopt us into his household. So we're in his house. And in Jesus' day, the temple mount had two major courtyards, right? You could divide them into the Gentile courtyard and the Jewish courtyards of the women the men and then the priests and nobody but the priests could go in there but it was subdivided into two major categories those outside the house of israel and those inside the house of israel here's what's interesting to me these magnificent menorahs weren't kept where only the jews could see them just like jesus said a light a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket These massive menorahs were stationed in such a way that it would flood the courtyard with light. There's no shadow. Can you imagine that much light coming off of these? But it wasn't just for, again, those within the courtyard of the Jews. They were put on in the outside courts for the Gentiles to marvel at, to look at the light of Israel Psalm 84, verse 1. We're looking at the courts, right? The household of God. Those in fellowship with God have fellowship with each other. We're family. Psalm 84, David sang this. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for the joy. Sing for joy to the living God. Verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Just one day, just give me one day. The foundation for our fellowship is with God. We cannot have fellowship with each other in light if we're not in the light of God. And if we're in the light with God, we have fellowship with each other. It's usually, though, what we see in the church, it's one or the other. It's not both and, unfortunately. Think about it. You're in the temple courts, giant manures blazing. Do you think walking up to someone, you couldn't discern who they were, what they looked like? And you know, everybody, especially the Jewish people who were there in the temple courts, everybody knew why everyone else was there, to worship God. They all had one express purpose, to worship him and to do so together. If you notice, David's song, understanding from a Jewish perspective about the temple courts, this is not an isolated event. He didn't come with the courtyard bare empty with himself alone in it. um, He's in the throngs of the family of God. David's song in Psalm 84 pictures being in God's house with God's people in a congregation, which means when the world thronged to the temple courts, you know what the Gentile world saw? They saw the fellowship of God's people. They saw the family of God being family together. And it was marvelous. They marveled at it. Here's the third point, and it's a question. Does your fellowship cause people to want to join God's family? does your fellowship cause people to want to join God's family? I can say from personal experience, when I got to know my in-laws, well, they weren't my in-laws at the time, I was just 13. Long story short, visiting up in North Idaho, my brother and I, my grandma got us connected with the family down the street, down the road, because imagine, At her age, dealing with two teen boys, she's like, I've only got so much energy, and I don't want them to be bored out of their minds while they're hanging out with us for weeks at a time. So my grandma wanted to connect us with some other teens. Girls, because my grandma wanted to be matchmaker. And apparently her ploy worked. And I'm thankful for it, Grandma. All this to say, I remember (laughs) the years that we started to continue spending time with the Coxes. When we come up to visit my grandparents, and I, I love my grandparents, but towards the end of high school, my mom and dad call us and said, "Boys, you need to spend more time with your grandparents." We loved being with their family. They they opened their arms. They shared food with us. And being two teenage boys from California, they trusted us to hang out with their daughters. I thought that would. Draw laughter. Anyway, all that to say, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Um, I fell in love with their family. No offense, sweetheart. I fell in love with their family before I fell in love with my wife. Because I got to see and experience love in their family. Does our fellowship cause people to be jealous for that same fellowship? But thinking Jesus loves me while believing I'm a good person on my own is to deny the life of his light that was given by his sacrifice on the cross. This seems, I think, for this crowd this morning, it's like, of course I'm a sinner. But I want you to know more and more people can acknowledge Jesus as God, but they don't come to grips and they refuse more and more to accept that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Being in Bakersfield, which is like a Bible pocket, okay, a lot of Okies and Texans moved to Bakersfield, and I can't tell you how many conversations I had on my university campus with people who went to church at least Christmas and Easter. But people would tell you, oh, I go to this church. It was common. It was accepted. But then when you talk about the gospel and ask them, you get to that point, you go, so have, have you confessed your need to Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior, accepting his sacrifice for your sins? Well, then the hymns and the haws start to come in. And there are a lot of cultural Christians whose belief about Jesus is rooted in tradition and what people have said and not what God says. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We cannot have fellowship and enjoy the marvelous power of his light if we deny our need for it. We will continue to walk in darkness and we will not have fellowship in him who is the light. We're not good people apart from Jesus. Jesus said this in John 15:5, by the way, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing means nothing. Apart from him, nothing. Another way of putting it is worthless. And Jesus goes on in John 15 to describe what happens to the branches that aren't abiding in him. They get cut off. And they get thrown into a waste heap. And We all know up here in the Northwest what we do if we live outside of the city limits, what we do with our green waste. We don't throw it in the trash. We burn it. It's worthless. It doesn't do anything. That's what happens to those who don't abide in Jesus, which is why Jesus came. I'm getting back to that question. They don't understand what the light of God truly does. Continue with me in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me back up to verse 7. He says, if we have fellowship with him, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We cannot be clean until we come into the light. Without the light, we can't see. We're blind to the darkness that covers us like mud, like filth. And then he says in verse nine, if we confess our sins, He is faithful. He is righteous to forgive us all our sins. He forgives our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we interact with people and talk about Jesus and our need for a savior in such a way that is freeing and liberating? Because Galatians 5, 1 says, it's for freedom's sake that Christ set us free. So don't be entangled any longer to the yoke of sin and slavery. But we in this country, in this culture, think sin is free and living righteously is slavery. But Paul also addresses that. We're going to be a slave to someone. Whatever you obey, whatever you follow, you are a slave to. I want to be a servant in the house of God, which is incredible because as we call ourselves servant of the Most High God who is light, what does He call us? Israel. Cute and adorable. She doesn't, she doesn't like it when I call her cute. That's okay. As she gets older, she's like, Dad, am I cute? She'll, she'll ask that one day, Lord willing. Saints don't rise. It's pretty simple here in verse 9 through 10. God speaks to us in childlike terms. Do you have mud on your face? Are you a bit of a disgrace? You kicking that sin all over the place? Okay, maybe this is Wrong song for the wrong generation. John, you got it right. We will, we will. I'm not going to continue that because that's just the point. The song says, we'll rock you. We don't want to rock anyone. We want to go to the rock who is the light of God, who by his incredible unfathomable love cleanses us from our sin. So if you've got issues in your life, come to Jesus. Don't run away from him. His light doesn't shine on us to burden us with guilt and shame but to cleanse us from it to give us confidence come to him to think we're good enough or we don't need Jesus is a deception from the pit of hell and it's designed it's designed to keep us from the love of God so by the way I'm just going to say this now when there's an invitation for prayer please take advantage of it maybe it's not for you maybe there's someone in your life that the Lord wants you to pray for Let's walk in the light together. If we have fellowship with God who is together, not just in word, but in prayer, not just in prayer, but in song, and not just on Sundays, on Wednesday nights, and not just on Wednesday nights, but in each other's homes, breaking bread, encouraging one another, not forsaking the gathering of this assembly, as some tend to do more and more, but that we would gather more so, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, as we see the day approaching, Raise your hand if you believe we're living in the last days. Okay, I will raise my hand, okay? I believe that wholeheartedly. If we're living in the last days and the night is getting darker, should we be retreating from fellowship or drawing into fellowship? It's an obvious question. And I'm not saying it patronizingly. I'm saying it for my own sake, too. All the more as we see the day drawing near. John's saying, going back to verses 9 through 10, we can't... (coughs) John's saying we can't make God a liar, but that we treat him as if he is, if we say we have no sin. This is blasphemy of the highest level. It's the sin of unbelief. There is one sin that is unforgivable. It's the sin of unbelief. It's the only sin that cannot be forgiven, Luke, 10, or Luke 12, 10. But God doesn't condemn us. Again, we go back to light we get apprehensive. What if I come forward and pray? What will people think? That's like me talking with my son or my daughter when they have a need. They're not concerned that the other one's going to think they're weak. They're coming to talk to mom or dad. And Peter sees that he's talking to John, and Peter goes, Jesus, what's up with that? And he goes, never mind. That's not for you. I'm talking to my son here. Peter, I'll talk with you in a minute." I don't want anyone to feel condemned coming forward for prayer. If that's how you feel or you're concerned about being judged, then we perceive prayer in a distorted perspective because that's not the way God's word talks about prayer. Now, I say all that, let me qualify it with this. I'm also not putting this out, putting judgment on you if you don't come forward for prayer. If you don't come forward for prayer, I'm not going to go, (coughs) hmm, sinner. I'm not. It's because if what I said is true, it's between you and God. If you don't come forward to pray with us, that's between you and him. I'm just encouraging all of us to come together to pray. And you know what? Maybe you don't need to come forward here. Maybe you've got friends or family with you, and there's things that God is doing in your heart right now. And during that altar call, as we call it, just pray with them right where you're at. This is a worship service. This is not just a Bible study. We don't open up God's word like a textbook, right? This is a letter revealing his heart to us that we would have fellowship with one another as we have fellowship with him in the light. So I encourage us. I'll put myself at the front of the list. Let's walk in the light together. Let's share with each other what's going on in our lives because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why do people feel condemned? Matthew 12, 37. Jesus said wrong in their schoolwork. They waste no time coming to admit they need our help. Sometimes we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before you come, (laughs) they wanna come to us for help before they've even taken time to figure it out on their own. It's like, ooh, this is too hard. Mom, dad, help me, which really means, mom, dad, give me the answer. Whoa, if only we were that way with the Lord. John writes this letter calling the people of the church little children, but you and I like to think of ourselves as much more than we actually are. God did not send his son to condemn us. God sent his son to make us clean. Will we admit our need for him to clean us? And as Les says all the time, it's not a one-time event. Imagine if we treated God's cleaning of us the way we treat our physical cleaning. I really pray and hope that we take more than one shower a year. There's a man in Iran who hasn't showered, hasn't bathed in, I think, 70 years. He's, he's yeah, Guinness World Record being the dirtiest man in the world. And how often do we treat being cleaned by God in that same way? Let's do it on a regular basis. I need to get cleaned all the time. I need him to wash me in his word all the time. I want to step under the waterfall, or do I? Yeah, but they might see all the filth that comes off of me. If I see a brother's sister confessing their sins, that should give me reason to rejoice with them that they're being freed. Not to go, oh, wow, they're more messed up than I thought. So you're fairly quick. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means satisfaction. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Like I said, Cam and I homeschool our kids. We want our kids to grow up in confidence. We want them to be confident. We don't want them to miss problems and get things wrong. But when they do get things wrong in their math or in their assignments, right, Judah, we come alongside them to help them correct their mistakes. We don't come over and go, what are you doing? I can't believe that. That's not how Cam and I teach our kids. Correction builds up. We're afraid of being corrected. Because again, we have a false view of what it means to be corrected. God's word says he disciplines those he loves. An illegitimate son doesn't get corrected. But a legitimate son of God does get corrected. Why? Because correction is to build us up. Condemnation, though, has no hope. Jesus did not come to condemn us. He came to give us a major course correction, set our eyes fixed purely on him so that as we look to him, we are transformed into his image of light. Kim and I don't stand against our kids. Verse 1 says advocate, and in the Greek, the Greek word for advocate is parakletos. Immediately all you Bible students went, "Oh, I know what that is. I know who that is. Paraclete, Parakletos." Who was it? Jesus said in John 14:16, "I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper." Right there, that should tell us we shouldn't be afraid of asking for help. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit, because Jacob Barchdell needs help so that he may be with you forever. And so as God's children, Jesus promises not to leave us as orphans, John 14, 18. He proved his promise by sending his spirit to help us in our time of need. Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, intermediates for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit helps us pray spiritual words, 1 Corinthians 2.13. To God, who is spirit, John 4.24. This should give you and I great confidence. How many times, though, do we pray and we feel like we're just throwing up words into the sky? Because it doesn't feel like something's happening. I don't see things happening. It's not working. If you have been sealed by the Spirit of God, become our high priest... Jesus the Christ Hebrews 4:16 Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy we can obtain compassion and find grace, that is the limitless resource, riches, and power of God, to help in time of need. We have been given the power to talk beyond the reaches of our universe, known and unknown, to the one who eternally exists outside of time, space, and matter. That's how profound prayer is. We have the opportunity to have fellowship with that one. And like I said, not as some subject, but as a son of God, as a child of God. It says in Hebrews four fourteen through 15, that Jesus stands before the Father as our high priest who takes our prayers and presents them to the Father like incense, like a sweet-smelling aroma. In Psalm 141, verse 1, O Lord, David sings, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. God's word was given to clean us, to consecrate us, which means to set us apart, special and holy to God for his purposes and to vindicate us with confidence. You have all the confidence as his child. If there's an area in your life where you are lacking confidence, that's not an issue on his side. That's an issue on our side. So what do we do when we lack confidence? We go to his. Jesus the Christ cleanses us on a continual basis. See, the devil seeks to distort our perception of God. He doles our eyes with darkness and deafens our ears with the cacophony of the world's voices. More now than ever before. You ever pointed something out in our staff meeting that I thought was so good? 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But as I've already been alluding, many of us have a distorted view of God's light. When When we talk about our sin, we think his light is going to condemn us. And part of the reason for that is, is because when I've seen a brother or sister come to God in his light to be clean, I have made a poor judgment. Instead of being, instead of rejoicing with them, I think, oh, what's up with them? We're brothers and sisters. Are we doing things, are we acting and talking in such a way that makes each other apprehensive to come to our Father in the light? That's a challenging thing. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But many cannot see this truth clearly because Jeremiah 7, 23 writes, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. Psalm 119, 105. His word is a light and a lamp to our feet. His word. But we get to share it together. Light. We need to come to know who he says we are. This is why there's an issue with our identity and our culture today. Because we've done everything we can to turn the lights out, to dim it down. It makes us feel comfortable. Oh, it's okay. God accepts you. Well, God accepts us. But as I've said before, imagine, I've said this to our students. Imagine I wear white clothes and the inside of my house is perfectly white. And then my son comes to the front door after playing outside over at Kiwanis Park, just down the street from us. And he comes up to the front door and he's covered in mud because he's been having a good time. And he opens the door and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Not so fast, buddy. Hang on, and he comes at dusk, so I can't see clearly. So what do I do? Turn the front porch light on, boom. Covered in all kinds of mud and some things that might not be mud if you catch my drift. I'm not going to let him into my house covered in mud. This is my, my wife's in my house, but he is my son. I turn the light on so he can see with me what I see. He's dirty, but I don't turn the light on and go, see how filthy you are. Go, go outside, go sleep on the lawn. Come back to me when you clean yourself up. That's not what Jesus ever does or ever says, He says, now let me clean you. It might be uncomfortable. Let's strip this down. Let me cleanse through him to enter his household. Look at verse two with me. First John chapter two, verse three. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have not come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Again, John makes a bold claim here. John writes this, though, because Jesus said it first. John's not judging people. Jesus is shining the light of his word on us so that we know where we stand and we can see him so that we can come to him. God is light. He's a beacon in the darkness. He's light so that we can come out of our darkness and come to him. But Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It makes sense, too. Amos 3.3 asks, how can two walk together unless they agree? There are far too many in the church who say they love Jesus and they walk completely vehemently in disagreement with him and what he says. How can we believe in Jesus and yet not agree with what he says? And what are the commandments? Jesus was challenged on this. In Matthew 22.36, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And a lot of us go, yeah, I do that. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. But I remember, I think it was this last year when Rick was teaching, he said something that I heard many years before, but for whatever reason, it finally took. I'm not called that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. Jesus gave up everything for us. And when we insulted him, we acted in offense towards him, we rejected him, you know what he did? He continued to offer his love and he looked for ways to reconcile us. That's way bigger, that's way bolder. I gotta love Kim the way I'd want her to love me, which first of all, that's hard in and of itself. Right, wives? Sometimes you're like, I wish my man would love me a little bit better. That's why God says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. That's why Paul says, live with your wives in an understanding way. But Jesus takes it beyond that, which again exposes just how far I fall short of my ability to love, which is why I need to abide in Christ because as much as I'm messed up and got hangups, I really do want to love my wife the way he loves me. But the only way I'm going to do that is if I receive him. That's the antidote for marriages. I could go on on that, but I won't. He says in verse 35 of John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's not enough to say I love God. James says, you say you have faith, I have faith by works. Jake, you say you love God? How do you love those of God? One who says, I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. How do we know the sheep from the wolves, the deceived from those who walk in the truth? 1 John 4, 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh is from God. It seems obvious, but as I shared last week, it's becoming less obvious. And people are finding ways to undermine who Jesus is. Well, he's Jesus, but the Christ left him before the crucifixion. Or Jesus is a great prophet, but he's not the Son of God. Jesus was anointed. No, no. God says he is the anointed. Well, what does that mean? I would urge us to take time to consider what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? A lot of people in the church have no clue, which is why so many folks are getting tricked out of the truth, because they don't know the real deal for what he says it is. When Paul came preaching Christ, the Berean believers didn't go, oh, it's Paul. This guy's a spiritual giant. No, it says that they listened to his teaching, and then what did they do to know if he was the real deal? All right, Paul, let us hear who you are and what you have to say, and we'll see if it matches up with, with Scripture. And it says in Acts 17, 11, that they were more noble-minded than others. Not lofty in knowledge, but they took God at his word. We use him who's in the light. You're gonna know the little candlesticks who belong to God and those who aren't. Look at verse 5 with me. We're going to finish with these last two verses. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him, that is God, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Keeping God's word perfects us. I want to say that one more time. His word, living by his word, keeping his word, perfects us in love. His love is perfected. Doing good deeds, cleaning up my life, having incredible knowledge and mysteries, praying beautiful prayers. Side note, I hope none of my extended family are going to hear this, but I have heard for a number of years when I pray with, you know, Thanksgiving or whatever, and I pray, people go, oh, Jacob, that was a beautiful prayer. I get what they mean. Maybe this is just me, but I go, I, because I wasn't praying this for it to sound beautiful and lofty. I prayed my heart to him the way I did because I'm talking to him. I don't care how beautiful my prayers are. I don't care if I give up everything I have. I even sacrifice my life for someone else. That doesn't prove and perfect my life. in God. I was listening to uh, Rick's teaching on this, and uh, he shared that our brother Mark Harris shared with him what comes to mind when he hears the word abide. Mark said when he thinks of abiding in God, he imagines a baby in the womb. When a mother breathes, her breath feeds oxygen to the baby. When a mother eats and drinks, the nutrients feed the baby. What does it mean to have fellowship with God? It means to abide in Jesus. We feed on his faithfulness, Psalm 37, 3. We let him breathe his spirit from his word through us, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. And you know, when I was writing this up this week, I had so many interruptions, my wife can tell you, and many times by little children, I kid you not. And as I share this with you this morning, I want because I don't know if I'm saying it Right. But you know what? I'm so thankful. My confidence is not in my ability to speak with the tongues of angels. My confidence is in his word, which is why we've been looking at it nonstop today. So you might get points that have nothing to do with what I wanted to highlight. But if you heard from God and his word is working in your heart, then praise God. My confidence is not in my ability to be a pastor or to teach his word. My confidence is in him and his word, and he can do far more, infinitely above what I could ever ask or imagine. And I wanna share things with you guys. Closing here. Many of the things that I shared with his nugget, and his nuggets are good, I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if I have a nugget. I barely have a marble. <laughs> so I just went, okay. Rick has said sometimes, part of the reason he shares what he's teaching it's because he wants to have a chance to glean from all of us what the Spirit of God might bring up in our heart. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to take a page out of Rick's playbook. All right, so guys, verse 5, and I read 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 5, and I said, what stands out to you? It wasn't like boom, 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 boom. It was like a delusion. I'm like, I don't have, I can't write all this down. There's something my wife shared I cannot forget, and I'm not going to tell you because it doesn't have to do with this. So profound, though, has to do with the armor of God. So many of the things, if I said anything, I'll say it this way, if I said anything that resonates with you, that encourages you, that points you to Jesus, then it is because of him and his word and what his spirit is doing in you. And third, because so much of what I'm sharing today was born out of my fellowship with brothers and sisters on Wednesday morning. I had nothing, and I went, this is what he said. What do you guys think? And I thought they'd give me, you know, Costco samples. Man, they laid out a banquet. I'm like, I can't eat all of it. (laughs) That's what happens when we have fellowship with each other. I was with my brothers and sisters, Les, Eva, Dean, and Cam specifically, because the others are in Israel. (sighs) Then, which is why we need to be with each other if we're truly family my wife shared a passage with me that then connected with what Dean said and it's left a profound question I want to share for all of us to consider the rest of this week. And this is my last point. You know what, I'll close my Bible. It's a sign we're done. Is Jake landing the plane? Yes, I am. <laughs> Here's the question that came to me from God, his spirit. It was like, all this, it wasn't like, wham! But it was like, I was in a room that was dark and the light switch turned on. I was like, that obvious. And it wasn't a point. It was a question that I have been ruminating over this last week. And I pray that you would continue to pray over it with me. We're looking at being children of light. Because we are. Uh, we are if we believe in Jesus, we're born of God. We're born again. And God is light. And then this question hit me as a result of a verse that I'm about to read to you that Cam said. Connected with something that Dean said. The question is this. Am I a child of the dawn or a child of the dusk? That's my last point. That's my question I want to share with you. Am I a child of the dawn or a child of the dusk? Both of them are in a transitory stage. But one is leaving the darkness, coming into the light. One is leaving the light and coming into the darkness. And for me, one of the ways this has convicted me but in a good way and i just get bogged down with concerns and stress and i go lord i can't do this i'm like peter who's on the wave right i'm like jesus if it's you call out to me come on out jake okay and i start to sink i find myself more easily i feel myself more aptitude to be a child of the dusk not because i'm reveling in sin but because sometimes i have a hard time trusting god you know why because I'm listening to the voices of the world. I'm listening to how I feel more than what he says and what he's confirmed his spirit to mine. Proverbs four eighteen, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The full day with you is all that I want. I love that song. The wicked, verse 19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Children of the dusk drift as they're heading into the night. But you and I who have been born again of Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice for my sins, we walk in the light and we go from bright to brighter to brighter until midday. That gives us hope. We don't have to be worried about the boogeyman under our bed because our Father is the light, and He does expose the darkness. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And I'll end with this. Children of the dawn are leaving night behind. And they, and this is the part that I struggle with. They look forward to the day. Too often, here's the day, and I'm a child of the light, and I'm still looking at the night. Please don't look at my bald spot. Why <laughs> the way, I, you, I'm just now seeing all those verses. You were like, what in the world is Jake doing this morning? How long are we going to be here? <laughs> Children of the dawn are leaving night behind, and they look forward to the day. Do we have joy for tomorrow? This morning, did you wake up and go, your mercies are new every day. We know the verse, but do we believe it? Do we look forward to the day with hope for a bright future? Worship team, would you come forward? Prayer team, you guys can go ahead and come on forward too. If there's anything, go ahead and stand with me as we get ready. If there's anything that the Lord's prompted on your heart, Let me tell you this, I said this last Sunday. I need what you have. As I shared, Wednesday staff meeting, I didn't have a whole lot. I felt like I was walking through the mud. I don't know how to put this together. And then all of a sudden, God answered my prayers through my brothers and sisters. You coming forward to pray, I need you to know this, ministers to our hearts. So if you're not coming for you, And I mean this when I say it. Would you come for me because there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ for his children? Lord, we thank you for this morning. There's so much, like Les and I were talking last week. This is bigger than I can say. And I feel so feeble. I I feel like a three-year-old trying to teach the profundities of the person of Jesus Christ. But I'm so thankful that your spirit intercedes on my behalf and your spirit teaches us from your word. Thank you for giving me the privilege to be able to meet with my brothers and sisters this morning and to share from my heart as best as I can with them what you've impressed on mine. Lord, we lift up this next moment to you and Lord, that you would draw our hearts to worship you, to marvel in you. And if there are things that we want to pray about, Lord, that we would feel released and, and, and freed and encouraged to come talk with each other about these things with you. Where two or three are gathered in my name, if they ask anything in my name, it will be granted to them. So Lord, show us what you want us to pray for. In your name we pray, amen.